Good morning from War Memorial United Methodist Church. Grace to you and peace in the name of Jesus Christ, the light in the darkness. As humans, we're pretty hesitant to see our own sin. But one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is actually to convict us of our sin so that we can sense our need for God's grace. When we see terrible things happen in our world, our first impulse is to judge and to convince ourselves that we would never get caught up in something like that. We might be offended to be numbered among liars, cheaters, scoundrels, murderers, rioters, or insurrectionists. But Jesus was killed alongside of two thieves, in the place of an insurrectionist who is actually guilty, unlike Jesus. Which is good news for us, because it means that Jesus isn't ashamed to be numbered among sinners like you and me either. And it gives us a great deal of freedom. Instead of trying to defend ourselves and convince ourselves that we're somehow pure and not like the others, we can throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and trust that in Him we find mercy. And in His mercy, we find the grace to be merciful to others. That's what we're talking about in the sermon today, and I hope that it blesses you. Let's pray. Most merciful Father, you who are full of loving kindness, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us through your word today, that we might know you, that we might be convicted of sin, and that your grace might give us confidence that you are restoring us into your image as you make us look more and more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm going to start this morning with uh, the story of Nathan and David. Nathan was a prophet. David has um, sinned against the Lord. He has uh, seen Bathsheba. He has desired her. He's brought her into his house and committed adultery with her and had her husband killed. And he's continued living as if nothing happened at all. And God is mad at David and wants Nathan to confront him. And this is what happens. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity." Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife 
and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Way back in September, I talked a little bit about the ways that the political and the theological seem to be conflated in some ways in our world. The ways that the political continues to expand and expand its territory in such a way that it's hard to talk theologically about some things without it seeming political. But as I told you back in September, we have to let everything, even our politics, get examined by the gospel. And what happened in our nation's capital this week, what happened in our nation's capital building this week, was in fact political. But it was also spiritual, as are all things when we look hard enough. And we need to talk about that today. So I've pushed back our celebration of the baptism of Jesus to next week that will come as a a celebration and invitation based on what we need to talk about this week. Because this week, God has deeply convicted me that we've got to talk about how the gospel and some of these things interact. And to do that, we've got to talk about sin. And we've got to talk about how we talk about sin. We've got to talk about these things, what happened in Washington, D.C. and sin, because it's at, the, at this intersection where we can start to see the problem clearly. It's from a, from a position of recognizing that there is a problem that we can begin to see and trust the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we in the world are broken beyond our capacity to heal ourselves, but not beyond the capacity of God to heal us. You can't miss the signs when you drive north on Highway 51 from Winona to Grenada. Just at the outskirts of town, there are these signs. Prepare to meet thy God and be rapture ready. These signs, I presume, are meant as a call to repentance, as a call to reckon with the coming judgment of the Lord, though the end times theology that they presume is somewhat different than Methodist doctrine. These signs remind me of the hellfire preachers that you often encounter at places like Bourbon Street in New Orleans or outside any large gathering of people, a concert or a football game, anywhere where someone might be able to gather a crowd on the streets. And these preachers, these street preachers, they call out to people as they walk by, people that they know to be sinners because they know that everyone is a sinner and try to get them to repent. They do so in assumed opposition to everyone listening, assuming that everyone who will hear is a sinner who needs to hear the gospel. They see themselves as somewhat different from the crowd, and they want the crowd to repent. I'm not personally convinced that these preachers accomplish very much, that this is a very helpful tool for evangelism in the current moment, but In fact, they might do more harm than good in encouraging people to know the goodness of God's grace. But I'm not critical of their orientation as much as I am their tactics. Jesus has indeed come to save sinners. And I pray that that good news spreads like wildfire around our world. 
And as is often the case when there are large crowds that gather together, there were people around D.C. this week talking about Jesus and holding up signs about him. There were large signs that read things like Jesus saves and Jesus 2020 as if it were a campaign sign. One of the men who was illegally marching through one of the houses of Congress was carrying a Christian flag. There were crosses to be seen all over the place. Except in this case, the symbols in the very name of Jesus weren't offered as a condemnation to the whole crowd of the abhorrent things going on. They, there was no indication that this was a classic invitation to repent. Instead, it all seemed to function in a way that communicated, God is with us in this. God is on our side. And there were other symbols around too, like the gallows with a noose hanging on the backside of the Capitol building near the reflection pool. There was a lot going on. And not everyone who participated in any of the events on Wednesday knew everything that was going on or approved of everything that happened. But all of those ideas running are running together for a lot of people. And it needs to be said that much of it, especially the violence and the lust for power and the um, other things that were happening are very far from the gospel of Jesus. And you may think that that's obvious to everyone, but it turns out that that's not the case. And in case you think I'm misinterpreting just a few symbols, it was articulated by people in the crowd, too, throughout the day. A man named Jeffrey Goldberg reported that a common thing among those that he spoke to at the rally before they moved to the Capitol was describing Donald Trump as a savior, with many of them even describing him as an agent of God, an agent of Jesus Christ. One man in the crowd shouted, Give it up for Jesus Christ! And people cheered. And then the same man shouted, Give it up for Donald Trump! And more people cheered. These things were aligned for many people in that crowd. And when that kind of thing happens, where the name of Jesus and political identity begin to get mixed up together and combined with violent rhetoric and actual violence, the church needs to say something about it, which means that we have to talk about sin, and we have to talk about how we talk about sin. So I want to read today from Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, and 1 John 1, 5 through 10. I invite you to hear this word. This first passage comes from towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has gone through the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comfortable. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will receive it. They will be satisfied. And he goes on to teach them about prayer. And he raises the bar for righteousness as he preaches. He says, if you, you've heard it said that uh, to murder is wrong, but I tell you that anyone who gets angry with his brother 
is murder. You've heard that it's wrong to lust, but I say anyone, or it's wrong to commit adultery, but I say that anyone who lusts has committed adultery. He's raising the standard for righteousness among his followers, even beyond that of the law. And then he says this in chapter 7. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take that speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson this morning, really our third lesson, comes from 1 John chapter 1, read verses 5 through 10. This is the message we've heard from him, that is Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we're walking in darkness, we lie and do not know what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar And his word is not in us. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. When we talk about sin, there are two things that can make it really hard for us to address it. The first is that we've got a double standard. That is to say that we are inclined to judge other people's sin much more harshly than we are to judge our own. We don't We want to diminish our own sin, to minimize it as much as possible, and the people that we're associated with as well. And we want to magnify the sins of others, especially our enemies. We judge ourselves much more gently than we judge our enemies. And that leads us into the second thing, that when we know that other people are sinners, we are inclined to distance ourselves from them as much as possible so that we're not found guilty by association. That's their sin, not mine. When Nathan comes to David, he does this genius thing. He takes David's position of power as king, the sense that David has that he gets to judge other people, And David's profound sense of righteousness and a desire to do the will of God in most things. And he tells a story that gives David a chance to judge another man, another man's sin, without knowing it's his own. And David takes the bait. He gets raging mad. He says, this man deserves to die and he should pay back fourfold what he has taken. And he ends his judgment by saying, because he has no pity. And the irony is that David is offering judgment of his own sin with no pity of what he's done. 
And David speaks some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. You are the man. He lays out for David the ways that he has done exactly what he is judging. He lays out all of the ways that God has blessed David and the ways that David has exploited that for more gain than he could ever ask for. And David repents. He says, I've sinned against God. And he writes Psalm 51, which is beautiful. And Nathan offers him forgiveness, but he does not entirely let David off the hook. David's family is still going to deal with the effects of his sin. And I think that story brings into sharp relief the reality that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. Where he said, blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He's taught them to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He's taught them how to pray. And as I said earlier, he's raised the standards for righteousness. And in terms of vengeance, he's told them to turn the other cheek rather than to strike their neighbor in the face. He's told them not to be anxious because God cares for them. And then he speaks in this way about judging others. He even calls them names. You hypocrite, he says. Take the roof beam out of your own eye, the, the log that's so big you could use it to hold up the ceiling of your house. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This instruction sits in the last third of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, where he's outlaid the grand scope and mission of his kingdom, where he's already described the upside-down nature of the gospel. And then he calls them hypocrites. The word hypocrite brings together a, a prefix, hypo, like hypoglycemia, or the word for low blood pressure, low blood sugar. It means low, and the word for judge, like critical. To judge below. It's to look at someone as if they are below you, their sins are below you, such that you would never be tempted by the things that they are. You're too far above that. You judge those things to be below you. We've seen this kind of thing play out throughout the public sphere all week. For a lot of folks, it started with a bit of self-righteousness about this protest relative to those that happened back in the summer that devolved into violence. At least it's not as bad as the riots from this summer. Because if there's a them and an us... We'll almost always judge their sins worse than our own. And then as the horrors of all of it began to unfold, a woman shot dead by police, a police officer who was struck in the head and killed by a fire extinguisher, another police officer smashed between two doors while a mob pressed with all of their force against him. Those things can't be diminished. So we begin to do the second thing to start to distance ourselves as best we can from what's going on. Surely that couldn't be people that share convictions with me. That's the kind of thing that people entirely unlike me would do. That must be enemies pretending to be aligned with the cause to give my cause a bad name. It can't be diminished, so we want to distance ourselves from it. We've got to be really careful 
about how we judge. Because even if we have a double standard, the Lord doesn't. We're going to receive the same measure that we give, judged by the same standard that we judge by. That doesn't mean that we leave our neighbor with grit scratching them in the eye, but it does mean that we need to deal with the roof beam first. To even speak about these things in judgment is to be a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite, and they're all hypocrites too. Every last one of them, none of us are as consistent as we would like to imagine we are. And it's always easier to see the horror of the sins of others than it is the horror of our own sin. But there is a way out of this conundrum, and it's as backwards as the rest of the kingdom of God. It doesn't start with denouncing the sins of everyone else. It starts with the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our own sin. Sometimes in our own hearts, and sometimes through the words of real friends. Friends like Nathan, whom God can use to help us see the brokenness and filth of our own hearts. And that drives us to the mercy of God. And God's mercy drives us to be merciful. There is another way to speak about sin. There's a way to speak about sin that doesn't come from self-righteousness and yet does not diminish its horror or guilt or shame or the anger that God has for our unrighteousness. Instead of beginning with self-righteousness, it begins with the grace of God that can make all things new. The grace that has put us in Christ and therefore made us a new creation. Speaking out of the grace and mercy of God in this way, let's us say with the full weight of the reality, I am a sinner. And to say otherwise would make me a liar. And to say that I'm in Christ and, and not be able to acknowledge the sin that is in my life means that I'm really not in Christ at all. And a lot of Christians can get this far. Oh yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But when someone, even a friend, has the audacity to try to help them see real sin, sin that has a name, dishonesty or pride, greed or lust or wrath or envy or racism or a lust for power or attention, a double standard of others. When it comes to things like that, our response is inclined to be very different. Not me. I could never do something like that. I could never be someone like that. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not any of these things. I could never be that. But in the light of the standard that Jesus sets for us in the Sermon on the Mount, these kinds of statements expose the hypocrisy that continues in our souls. That we think it's up to us to avoid sin, rather than to lean on Jesus to cleanse us from its guilt and power. It's not an excuse to stay in sin. It's just an acknowledgement of the reality that to deny it is to let it continue. And the place to start is not with denial, but with confession. While this doesn't mean that Christians never speak against sin, we should and we do. I hope that I'm doing that right now. 
But when we speak against sin, we do so as sinners. We should all speak about all sin like Tiger Woods trying to teach his kids what it means to be faithful in marriage. Or like a murderer trying to talk to others about the destruction that comes with violence. Or like an alcoholic speaking against drunkenness. Not as one who judges from above, but as one who is in the mire of it all and has been saved by the power of the blood of Jesus that can break every chain. Don't diminish your sin and magnify others. Don't deflect by convincing yourself that others are worse than you. Don't try to distance yourself from those that you would, be, you would consider to be the scum of the earth. Instead, know that apart from the grace of God, that's exactly who you are. And then step out into the light where everyone, even God himself, sees you clearly where you can fellowship with God and all of God's people, where your wounds of sin and shame of guilt and grief become the exact points where God's light reflects most brightly through you. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. It's not my job to tell you where you should stand politically. It is my job to testify to the goodness and the mercy of God to save any sinner. And it is my job to offer an alternative witness when others take our Lord's name in vain. Some things that masquerade as political have deep spiritual ramifications. The way that you engage your politics affects your soul. And if you believe lies, it will keep you from knowing the truth. And the way that Christians engage and don't engage other Christians as they use symbols and words that represent our Lord affects our witness. The gospel takes root and prospers and bears fruit, not in the self-righteous judgment of others, but in the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that invites us into the grace of Jesus that welcomes us into the glory of Jesus' marvelous light and showers His grace upon us when we don't deserve it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That should be our default. Not that others have sinned, but that we have. And once God has helped us with the roof beam in our eyes, we'll be equipped to see clearly, to help others with the speck that's in theirs. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we confess to you what you already know. That we've sinned, that we have fallen far short of your glory, of the high calling that you have set before us that there are names to the sins that we have committed. That often we don't want to hear that from friends or enemies. We'd rather insist on our righteousness than lean on your grace. We pray, O Lord, that today you would soften our hearts. You would remind us of who we are apart from your grace. 
and that in your grace we could truly become a new creation. Help us to not diminish our own sin or in the sin of others to distance ourselves from it so that we can say that's not us, but to see the ways that we still need your ongoing redemption in our lives, to deliver, to deliver us from the chains that bind us and free us to dance in the light of your glory. Pray this in your holy, your precious, and your powerful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Moore Memorial United Methodist Church. We appreciate every one of you who gives in large or small ways to support our ministries. If you'd like to give so that we can continue to share the love of Christ through study, worship, and service, you can do so at our website, moorememorialumc.com, or by mailing your check to P.O. Box 467 here in Winona. I encourage you to find some time this week maybe even as soon as the broadcast is over, to read Psalm 51 and to pray David's prayer of confession as your own. It'll be good for your soul. Rest in the peace of God, knowing that his love is sufficient for all of your sins and to bring you into glory and fellowship with him. Amen. Amen.